When thinking about the killer who was the subject of today's tale, one of the things that came to light in the wake of his crime spree was his manifesto. I started thinking back, trying to remember the first time I had heard of such a thing, a killer's manifesto, a published verbal declaration of the intentions, motives, or views of an individual. And I think the first notable killer I recall having a manifesto was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. You guys remember him, right? He was the mathematician, anarchist, and domestic terrorist who was a mathematical prodigy and abandoned his academic career in 1969, who between 1978 and 1995 killed three people and injured 23 others in a nationwide mail bombing campaign that targeted people with careers involving modern technology. In 1995, Kaczynski mailed a number of letters to several media outlets outlining his objectives. He demanded that his 35,000 word essay entitled Industrial Society and Its Future be printed verbatim by a major newspaper publication. This essay, is what became known as the Unabomber Manifesto. Kaczynski said that if his essay were to be published, that he would stop his terrorist bombings. There was a controversy as to whether or not the document should be published. The Attorney General at the time, Janet Reno, along with FBI Director Louis Free, recommended it be published, not only out of concern for public safety, but also in the hopes that someone reading the thing would be able to identify the author. Penthouse Magazine offered to publish the manifesto, but Kaczynski replied that that magazine was not a respectable publication, and that if it were to be published by Penthouse, that he would reserve the right to plant one bomb intended to kill after the manuscript has been published. On September 19, 1995, the New York Times and the Washington Post published the Unabomber's Manifesto. 35,000 words is an incredibly long essay. Typed and double-spaced in your average Word document, that would be about 140 pages long. In his manifesto, Kaczynski puts forth the idea that the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have long been a disaster for the human race. He stated that technology has had a destabilizing effect on society, that it has made life unfulfilling, and has caused widespread psychological suffering. He would argue that because of technological advances, most individuals spend their time involved in useless pursuits called surrogate activities, where people strive towards artificial goals such as scientific work, consuming mass entertainment, or worshiping sports teams. He predicted that any further advances in technology will eventually result in the extensive genetic engineering of human beings, so that future human beings will no longer be a creation of nature, of chance, or of God. He also stated that social systems will not be adjusted to suit the needs of human beings, but rather human beings will be adjusted to suit the needs of the system that many people have an understanding of what technological progress is doing to us, yet they take a passive attitude towards it because they think it's inevitable. 
But Kaczynski doesn't think it's inevitable and thinks it can be stopped. He argues that the task of those who oppose an industrialized society is to promote social stress and instability and to propagate an ideology that opposes technology, one that offers the counter-ideal of nature in order to gain enthusiastic support. So when the system becomes sufficiently stressed and unstable, a revolution against technology may be possible. Throughout his manifesto, Kaczynski addresses leftism as a movement. He defines leftists as mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay activists, disability activists, and animal rights advocates, and the like. He argues that leftism is driven primarily by feelings of inferiority and over-socialization, and derides leftism as one of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world. He also goes on to say that a movement that exalts nature and opposes technology must take a resolutely anti-leftist stance and must avoid all collaboration with leftists, as it is Kaczynski's belief that leftism is, in the long run, inconsistent with nature, with human freedom, and with the elimination of modern technology. He also criticizes conservatives, describing them as fools who whine about the decay of traditional values, yet enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. He states that it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of the society as well and such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values. I don't know about you, but I find that in this very minimal analysis of Kaczynski's manifesto to be mind-numbing. I simply don't have a great deal of reverence for this man's writings because of the way he terrorized and murdered over a period of 17 years. But his manifesto has been lauded as the work of a genius, filled with ideas shared by the country's most highly educated, carefully reasoned, artfully written, worryingly convincing. One UCLA professor stated, if it is the work of a madman, then the writings of political philosophers, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Thomas Paine, Karl Marx, are scarcely more sane. A writer for Fox News stated, reprehensible for murdering and maiming people, but precisely correct in many of his ideas. Kaczynski could have had an influence. He could have been a philosopher. He could have shared his ideology, and people would have listened. But for me, anything he ever had to say or continues to say from where he's locked up, serving his eight consecutive life sentences, is far overshadowed by his murderous behavior. Nonetheless, the manifesto, the ramblings of a madman, is admittedly quite fascinating. Who were some other notable criminals who published their chilling manifestos? Their personal declarations of murderous intentions and motives only to frustratingly be discovered after the fact. There's a few out there, if not all of us can recall in recent times not all were necessarily written in essay form. 
Some were made into videos, some in diaries, some posted on social media. All of them, if somehow discovered sooner or intercepted by someone paying attention to what was going on in the minds of these individuals, may have been stopped before they could bring their intent to kill to fruition. Dylan Roof, before he perpetrated the massacre at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina that killed nine people, he operated a website called The Last Rhodesian, where he published a 2,000-word manifesto that went into great detail about his hatred towards other races, including a number of disturbing images. Misogynistic murderer Elliot Roger, who killed six people, posted a video on YouTube less than 24 hours before he perpetrated the killings. In his video, he's sitting in his BMW recounting his social isolation and sexual frustrations. He also wrote a lengthy manifesto entitled My Twisted World, The Story of Elliot Roger that explains his motivations and his plans to lure people to his apartment and kill them. His writings demonstrated a personality dominated by resentment, jealousy, and frustration with a deep sense of injustice based on his perceived personal superiority and the inability of women to recognize it. Sung Wee Choi, also known as the Virginia Tech Shooter, sent out a package to NBC News with 23 pages of photographs, writings, and an almost half-hour video in what has been characterized as a multimedia manifesto. In it, he states that he was forced into these actions because of mistreatment by unspecified individuals. He expresses anger against hedonism and Christianity, as well as the desire to seek revenge, but he never really clearly says who he hopes to get revenge against. He even claims to be killing the wicked for the sake of the innocent. He says, Oh, the happiness I could have had mingling among you hedonists, being counted as one of you. Only if you didn't fuck the living shit out of me. You could have been great. I could have been great. Ask yourself what you did to me to have made me clean the slate. Only you could be the victim of your reprehensible, wicked crimes. You Christian Nazis, you have brute restrained your animal urges to fuck me. You could be at home, right now, eating your fucking caviar and your fucking cognac, had you not ravenously raped my soul. Experts who have viewed Cho's video manifesto have said that they really don't do much to help anyone understand him. He was meek and quiet in person. This was basically a PR tape of him making himself out to be some kind of character right out of a Tarantino movie or something. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, collectively known as the Columbine Shooters, left behind various pieces of written materials, personal diaries, pictures, essays, a website, and a pretty detailed plan of their attack, as well as some short stories. Their writings gave some insight into their perceived social alienation 
and contradictory feelings of superiority and self-loathing that was the driving force behind the two committing their shooting rampage at their high school. Harris's diary begins with the words, I hate the fucking world. And just like those words imply, their hatred wasn't clearly directed towards anyone specific and was broadly applied to the entire human race. They basically hated everyone, people of every race, Star Wars fans, fitness fanatics, martial artists, people who mispronounce words, slow drivers, and the WB network were specifically called out. They pretty much saw themselves as the master race, and the greatness of it was limited to the two of them. The day before their assault on Columbine, Klebold wrote, about 26.5 hours from now, the judgment will begin. Difficult, but not impossible. Necessary, nerve-wracking, and fun. What fun is life without a little death? It's interesting. When I'm in my human form, knowing I'm going to die. Everything has a touch of triviality to it. The subject of today's tale also left behind a lengthy 11,000-word manifesto prior to going on his killing rampage. For 10 days, from February 3rd through February 12th, 2013, an ex-LAPD officer and former United States Naval Reservist carried out a series of shooting attacks that targeted police officers and their families. The attacks left four people dead, including two police officers, and left three police officers wounded. He would become the subject of one of the largest manhunts in LAPD history, spanning two U.S. states and Mexico. In today's episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Last Resort. Christopher Jordan Dorner was born June 4th, 1979 in New York, but he was raised in Southern California. He attended Norwalk Christian School from first to seventh grade. He would mention in his manifesto that he was the only African-American student at that school. And during his time there, he experienced numerous racial issues with his peers and that he had been mostly raised in neighborhoods with very minimal black population. He also stated that he was frequently disciplined for getting into fights with other students in response to racial slurs and name-calling directed towards him. He attended John F. Kennedy High School in La Palma, California, and Cypress High School in Cypress, California, where he was in the graduating class of 1997. He went on to attend Southern Utah University, where he graduated from in 2001 with a major in political science and a minor in psychology. The university has also confirmed that Dorner played football at the university for two years in the position of running back. Dorner was a Naval Reservist Lieutenant who was honorably discharged. He was commissioned in 2002 and commanded a security unit at the Naval Air Station in Fallon, Nevada. He served with the Mobile Inshore Undersea Warfare Unit from June of 2004 to February of 2006. He was deployed to Bahrain 
with Coastal Riverine Group 2 from November of 2006 to April of 2007. He was honorably discharged from the Naval Reserve on February 1, 2013. Dorner joined the Los Angeles Police Department in 2005 and completed the police academy training in 2006. Within a year's time, Dorner would begin to struggle with his career in the LAPD. On July 28, 2007, Dorner and his training officer, Teresa Evans, who is now a sergeant, answered a call to head to a Doubletree Hotel in San Pedro, California, regarding a mentally ill man, Christopher Gettler, who was apparently causing a disturbance at the hotel. Two weeks later, Officer Evans gave Dorner a performance review that he was quite unhappy with. In it, she stated that he needed to improve his performance in several areas. The very next day, Dorner filed a report alleging that Officer Evans had used excessive force in her treatment of Christopher Gettler on that call at the Doubletree Hotel. Dorner accused Evans of kicking Gettler in the face twice while he was lying on the ground and handcuffed. An internal review board investigated these claims and listened to the testimony of several witnesses. Richard Gettler, Christopher's father, had testified that he had returned home with his face injured and swollen and indicated that he had been kicked by a police officer. His father decided not to report this incident to the police because the injury appeared to be relatively minor and his son was either unable or unwilling to explain why he had been kicked. Christopher said that he had been kicked by a female officer who was described as almost black with dark hair, but Evans is white with blonde hair. He went on to partially correct the statement by saying that she had light hair. He had also stated that he thought his injuries were caused by a club. His father defended his inconsistencies by explaining that his son's mental illness prevented him from being a reliable witness. Christopher is a schizophrenic complicated by severe dementia. Dorner was being represented by former Los Angeles police captain Randall Kwan. Remember the name Kwan, as this name will come up again later on in this episode. Dorner maintained that Evans kicked Christopher Gettler after placing him in handcuffs. Three witnesses, including two Doubletree hotel employees and a San Pedro port officer, all testified that they did not witness Evans kicking Christopher Gettler. Evans also denied kicking him as well. However, as eyewitness testimony has been called into question time and time again, the port officer made a statement recalling that he told Dorner to fix his tie. However, a picture from the scene showed that Dorner was, in fact, not wearing a tie. The internal review board's three members, which consisted of two LAPD captains and a criminal defense attorney, unanimously ruled against Dorner. They found that his claims lacked credibility and further found that he was being motivated to bring these accusations against his training officer, Evans, out of fear that she would give him a poor evaluation that could adversely affect his LAPD career, possibly even end it. As a result, Dorner's employment with the department was terminated on September 4, 2008.
Dorner appealed his termination, and in 2010, the case was examined by Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge David P. Yaffe, who ruled against Dorner once again and upheld the LAPD's decision to fire him. Judge Yaffe stated that he was uncertain whether the training officer kicked the suspect or not, but nevertheless decided to uphold the department's decision. What his decision actually meant in this case, according to the appellate judge, that Dorner could be legally fired for filing a false police report, even if the report was true. This enraged Dorner. He appealed his termination by the LAPD Board of Rights by filing a writ of mandamus with the Los Angeles County Superior Court, which also upheld the LAPD's termination of Dorner. He then appealed again to the California Court of Appeal for the Second Appellate District, which again affirmed the lower court's ruling on October 3, 2011. Under California law, administrative findings, in this case by the LAPD, are entitled to a presumption of correctness, and the petitioner, in this case Dorner, bears the burden of proving that they were incorrect in their action. The appeals court concluded that the LAPD Board of Rights had more than enough substantial evidence for its findings that Dorner was not credible in his allegations against Sergeant Stevens. Dorner was done with his appeals. Early in February of 2013, Dorner posted a detailed communication on his Facebook page discussing his history, his motivations, and his plans. This communication, amounting to approximately 11,000 words, became known as his manifesto. Los Angeles television news stations published a redacted version of his manifesto, which omitted the names of all parties mentioned in it. This made the manifesto somewhat difficult to understand at the time. Unredacted versions are now available for viewing online for those who are interested in taking a look at the full document. In his manifesto, Dorner pointed to his termination despite his sworn testimony that the excessive force that he had described in fact occurred. He mentioned that no action was taken against Officer Evans, whom he had accused of excessive force and who in turn accused Dorner of misconduct during a patrol. He demanded a public admission by the LAPD that his termination was in retaliation for having reported the excessive force. Dorner listed 40 law enforcement personnel whom he was prepared to kill and stated, I know most of you who personally know me are in disbelief to hear from media reports that I am suspected of committing such horrendous murders and have taken drastic and shocking actions in the last couple of days. You are saying to yourself that this is completely out of character of the man you knew who always wore a smile whenever he was seen. I know I will be vilified by the LAPD and the media. Unfortunately, this is a necessary evil that I do not enjoy, but must partake and complete for substantial change to occur within the LAPD and reclaim my name. 
The department has not changed since the Rampart and Rodney King days. It has gotten worse. The consent decree should never have been lifted. The only thing that has evolved from the consent decree is that officers involved in the Rampart scandal and Rodney King incidents have been promoted to supervisors, commanders, and command staff, and executive positions. Dorner goes on to discuss what a person's name means. A name is more than just a noun, verb, or adjective. It's your life, your legacy, your journey, sacrifices, and everything you've worked hard for every day of your life as an adolescent, young adult, and adult. Don't let anybody tarnish it when you know you've lived up to your own set of ethics and personal ethos. He also talks about what losing his position in the LAPD and all subsequent appeals meant for his naval career. I have exhausted all available means by obtaining my name back. I have attempted all legal court efforts within appeals at the Superior Courts and California Appellate Courts. This is my last resort. The LAPD has suppressed the truth and it has now led to deadly consequences. The LAPD's actions have cost me my law enforcement career that began on February 7, 2005 and ended on January 2, 2009. They cost me my naval career, which started in April of 2002 and ends in February of 2013. I had TSSCI clearance, which means top secret sensitive compartmentalized information clearance up until shortly after my termination with the LAPD. This is the highest clearance a service member can attain other than a Yankee White TSSCI, which is only granted for those working around the President or Vice President of the United States. I lost my position as a commanding officer of a Naval Security Forces Reserve Unit at Fallon Naval Air Station because of the LAPD. I've lost a relationship with my mother and sister because of the LAPD. I've lost a relationship with close friends because of the LAPD. In essence, I've lost everything because of the LAPD who took my name and knew I was innocent. Dorner goes on in his ranting, talking about what he is and isn't. I'm not an aspiring rapper. I'm not a gang member. I'm not a dope dealer. I don't have multiple babies' mamas. I'm an American by choice. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a military service member. I'm a man who lost complete faith in the system. When the system betrayed slandered and libeled me. I lived a good life, and though not a religious man, I always stuck to my own personal code of ethics, ethos, and always stuck to my shoreline and true north. I didn't need the U.S. Navy to instill honor, courage, and commitment in me, but I thank them for reinforcing it. It's in my DNA. Luckily, I don't have to live every day like most of you. 
Concerned if the misconduct you are taking part in is going to be discovered. Looking over your shoulder, scurrying at every phone call from internal affairs or from the captain's office, wondering that if that was going to be the day that PSB comes after you for the suspects you struck when they were cuffed months or years ago, or that $500 you pocketed from the narcotics dealer, or when the other guys on your watch beat a transient nearly to death and you never reported the UOF to the supervisor. I looked up those abbreviations and he used a lot of them through his manifesto, but I'm going to probably leave most of them out. But PSB stands for Professional Standards Bureau and UOF is use of force. In all of this, Dorner is referencing the allegations of misconduct and the use of excessive force that he made, the thing that got him fired from the LAPD. Dorner then gets to the place in his manifesto where he makes his demands. The attacks will stop when the department states the truth about my innocence publicly. I will not accept any type of currency or goods in exchange for the attacks to stop, nor do I want it. I want my name back, period. There is no negotiation. This department has not changed from the Daryl Gates and Mark Fairman days. Those officers are still employed and have all been promoted to command staff and supervisory positions. I will correct this error. Are you aware that an officer a rookie-slash-probationer at the time, seen on the Rodney King videotape striking Mr. King multiple times with a baton on March 3, 1991, is still employed by the LAPD and is now a captain on the police department? Then Dorner gets to the place where he points fingers, places blame, and calls out his targets. He says... Sometimes humans feel a need to prove that they are the dominant race of a species and they inadvertently take kindness for weakness from another individual. You choose wrong. Terminating officers because they expose a culture of lying, racism, and use of excessive force will immediately change. PSB cannot police their own, and that has been proven. The blue line will forever be severed and the cultural change will be implanted. You have awoken a sleeping giant. I'm here to change and make policy. The culture of the LAPD versus the community and honest good officers needs to and will change. I am here to correct and calibrate your moral compasses to true north. Those Caucasian officers who joined South Bureau divisions with the sole intent to victimize minorities who are uneducated and unaware of criminal law, civil law, and civil rights. You prefer the South Bureau because a use of force or deadly force is likely and the individual you use your use of force on will not report it. You are a high value target. Those black officers in supervisory ranks and pay grades who stay in South Bureau, even though you live in the Valley or in Orange County, for the sole intent of getting retribution towards subordinate Caucasian officers 
For the pain and hostile work environment their elders inflicted on you as probationers and novices, you are a high-value target. You perpetuated the cycle of racism in the department as well. You breed a new generation of bigoted Caucasian officers when you belittle them and treat them unfairly. Those Hispanic officers who victimize their own ethnicity because they are new immigrants to this country and are unaware of their civil rights, you call them wetbacks to their face and demean them in front of fellow officers of different ethnicities so that you will receive some sort of acceptance from your colleagues. I'm not impressed. Most likely your parents and grandparents were immigrants at one time, but you have forgotten that. You are a high value target. Those lesbian officers in supervising positions who go to work day in and day out with the sole intent of attempting to prove your misandrist authority, not feminism, to degrade male officers, you are a high-value target. Those Asian officers who stand by and observe everything I've previously mentioned other officers participate in on a daily basis but say nothing, stand for nothing, and protect nothing. Why? Because your usual saying, I don't like conflict. You are a high-value target as well. Those of you who go along to get along have no backbone and destroy the foundation of courage. You are the enablers of those who are guilty of misconduct. You are just as guilty as those who break the code of ethics and the oath that you swore. Citizens and non-combatants do not render medical aid to downed officers or enemy combatants. They would not do the same for you. They will let you bleed out just so they can brag to other officers that they had a 187 caper the other day and can't wait to accrue the overtime in the future court subpoenas. As they always say, that's the paramedic's job, not mine. Let the balance of loss of life take place. Sometimes a reset needs to occur. It is endless the amount of times per week officers arrest an individual, label him a suspect, arrestee, defendant, and then before arraignment or trial realize that he is innocent based on evidence. You know what they say when they realize an innocent man just had his life turned upside down? Oh, I guess he should have stayed home that day as he was discovered walking down the street and matching the suspect's description. Oh well, he appeared to be a dirtbag anyways. Meanwhile, the falsely accused is left to pick up his life get new family, friends, and a sense of self-worth. Do not honor these fallen officers slash dirt bags. When your family members die, they just see you as extra overtime at a crime scene and at a perimeter. Why would you value their lives when they clearly don't value yours or your family members' lives? I've heard many officers who state they see dead victims as ATVs, wave runners, RVs, and new clothes for their kids. Why would you shed a tear for them when they, in return, crack a smile for your loss because of the impending extra money they will receive in their next paycheck for sitting at your loved one's crime scene for six hours because of the overtime they will accrue? They take photos of your loved one's recently deceased bodies with their cell phones 
and play a game of who has the most graphic dead body of the night with officers of other divisions. This isn't just the 20-something-year-old officers. This is the 50-year-old officers with significant time on the job as well who participate. To those children of officers who are eradicated, your parent was not the individual you thought they were. As you get older, you will see the evidence that your parent was a tyrant who lost their ethos and instead followed the path of moral corruptness. They conspired to hide and suppress the truth of misconduct on each other's behalves. Your parent will have their name and a plaque on the Fallen Officers Memorial in D.C. But in all honesty, your parent's name will be a reminder to other officers to maintain the oath that they swore and to stay along the shoreline that has guided them from childhood to that local, state, or federal law enforcement officer. Your lack of ethics and conspiring to wrong a just individual are over. Suppressing the truth will lead to deadly consequences for you and your family. There will be an element of surprise where you work, live, eat, and sleep. Dorner rambles on and on about the individuals he blames for the perceived injustice done to him, of firing for something he felt was wrong and unfair, while others who have been involved in worse situations remained on the force and continued on advancing in their careers. He also goes on at great length thanking a plethora of people who hadn't wronged him in life, colleagues, friends, doctors. He also acknowledged many public figures, politicians, news anchors, and celebrities. However, many parts of it I found chilling, especially when Dorner says, Self-preservation is no longer important to me. I do not fear death as I died long ago. I was told by my mother that sometimes bad things happen to good people. I refuse to accept that. He then outlines his plan and states, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. This is a quote not directed toward the U.S. government, which I fully support 100%. This is towards the LAPD, who cannot monitor itself. The consent decree should not have ever been lifted. I know your techniques, tactics, and procedures. Any threat assessments you generate will be useless. This is simple. I will mitigate your attempts at preservation. I will mitigate all risks, threats, and hazards. I assure you that incident command posts will be target-rich environments. I will conduct operations to destroy, exploit, and seize designated targets. If unsuccessful or unable to meet objectives in these initial small-scale offensive actions, I will reassess and reattack until objectives are met. I have nothing to lose. My personal casualty means nothing. You cannot prevail against an enemy combatant who has no fear of death. An enemy who embraces death is a lose-lose situation for the enemy combatants. Hopefully you have done your homework. You are aware that I have always been the top shot, highest score, an expert in rifle qualifications in every unit that I've been in. I will utilize every bit of small arms training, demolition, ordnance, and survival training I have been given. The violence of action will be high. I am the reason the tactical alert was established. 
I will bring unconventional and asymmetrical warfare to those in LAPD uniform, whether on duty or off. ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance is my strength and your weakness. You will now live the life of the prey. Do not attempt to shadow or conduct any type of intelligence, surveillance, or reconnaissance on me. You may have the resources and the manpower, but you are reactive and predictable in your operation plans. I have the strength and benefits of being unpredictable, unconventional, and unforgiving. Don't waste your time with briefs and tabletops. Whatever pre-planned responses you have established for a scenario like me, shelve it. Whatever contingency plan you have, shelve it. Whatever tertiary plan you have created, shelve it. I'm a waxing exigent circumstance with no off or reset button. No joint regional intelligence center, Department of Justice, Los Angeles County Sheriff, FBI, or other local law enforcement can assist and should not involve themselves in a matter that does not concern them. For all other agencies, do not involve yourselves in this capture and recovery of me. Look at the big picture of the situation. They, the LAPD, created this situation. I will harm no outside agency unless it's a deadly force or immediate defense of life situation. With today's budgeting and fiscal mess, you guys cannot afford to lose several officers. Outside agencies and individual officers on patrol, if you recognize my vehicle and confirm it's my vehicle through a DMV or warrant check, it behooves you to respond to dispatch that your query was for information purposes only. If you proceed with a traffic stop or attempt to notify other officers of my location for backup, you will not live to see the Medal of Valor you were hoping to receive for your actions. Think before you attempt to intervene. You will not survive. Your family will receive the Medal of Valor posthumously. It will gather dust on the fireplace mantle for years. Then, one day, it will go into a shoebox with your other memories. Your mother will lose a son or daughter. Your significant other will be left alone, but they'll find someone else to fill your void in the future to make them just as happy. Your children, if you have them, will call someone else mommy or daddy. Don't be selfish. And with that, Christopher Dorner then embarked upon his killing spree. On February 1st, 2013, CNN anchor Anderson Cooper received a package at his office containing a DVD that included in it Dorner's case against the LAPD. This package also contained a bullet-riddled challenge coin issued by LAPD Chief William Bratton with a note that said 1-M-O-A, which stands for one minute of angle, implying that the coin was shot at 100 yards away with a bullet hole grouping of one inch, meant to showcase Dorner's accuracy with a rifle. I will include pictures of this coin with its bullet holes on social media after the release of this episode. On February 3rd, in the city of Irvine, in the evening hours, Monica Kwan and her fiancé, Keith Lawrence, were found shot to death in Lawrence's car, a white Kia Optima, 
which was parked outside their condominium complex. This was the kind of thing that had almost never been seen in one of the safest cities in the United States. A young couple shot to death at close range while they sat in their still-running car in the parking garage in the midst of hundreds of condos. The only evidence left at the scene were some 9mm shell casings and a small beanie. Not one single neighbor heard or saw a thing. Irvine, California is a quiet, upscale suburb of Orange County that many would consider to be the epitome of a planned community. The police department might see two, possibly three murders annually and is almost nearly the result of a domestic dispute gone bad and is quickly resolved. On that day, February 3rd, the big news was supposed to be that the Baltimore Ravens had defeated the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl. This would not be the case for the Irvine police that evening. The 911 wall came in around 9 p.m. Two people were found shot to death in their vehicle on the top floor of a gated condo parking garage near the University of California Irvine campus. When police arrived, it was quickly evident that this was not the result of a domestic dispute. The car was running and the headlights were on. A man and a woman were slumped in their seats. Fourteen shell casings were found around the car. It was quickly determined that the shooting was not a murder-suicide or a robbery. It kind of looked more like a hit or a contract killing. The kind of thing that never happens in Irvine. Looking to try and quickly identify the victims, detectives noticed a University of Southern California parking sticker on the car. They called in the sticker number to USC and were told it belonged to University Public Safety Officer Keith Lawrence. Few details were being released to the media, but the nature of the crime, being so unusual, made it onto the evening news throughout Southern California. Among those who received the news through television broadcasts was Randall Kwan, a retired captain from the Los Angeles Police Department. The captain, who I spoke about earlier on in this episode, who represented Dorner in his dismissal hearing from the LAPD. Based on the location of the murders and the descriptions of the victims, he was immediately filled with dread. He knew his daughter, Monica, and her fiancé had driven home to Irvine that evening after spending the day with Keith's family. She always called her dad when she got home. He had been unable to reach her all evening. Randall called the Irvine police with his fears and a description of Monica and Keith. They were identified as the murdered couple. Knowing who they were only deepened the mystery of how and why this happened to them. Monica and Keith had fallen in love while attending Concordia University in Irvine. They starred on the men's and women's basketball teams and remained passionate about the sport. Monica had recently become the assistant women's basketball coach at Cal State University Fullerton. Keith had trained at the Ventura County Sheriff's Academy and had worked for the Oxnard, California Police Department before joining the USC Department of Public Safety. Monica was 28 and Keith 
was 27 years old. On February 4th, Dorner's manifesto was published online. I've gone over its contents extensively, and basically it's been determined that his main motives for his actions is to clear his name. His manifesto specifically named Randall Kwan and his family as targets, so the Irvine Police Department determined Dorner was likely responsible for the double murder. He was publicly identified as the primary suspect on February 6, 2013. The manifesto stated that Randall Kwan had failed to represent Dorner's interests in favor of those of the department. On February 5th, according to military records, Dorner checked into the naval base at Point Loma in San Diego, California, but skipped checkout procedures when leaving. What he had been doing there is anybody's guess. On February 7th, two LAPD officers were headed to a protection detail where they had been assigned as security for one of the officers named in Dorner's manifesto and potentially was being targeted by Dorner when they were flagged down by a gentleman by the name of R.L. McDaniel at about one in the afternoon. He had reported seeing a man matching Dorner's physical description at a gas station in Corona, California. The police officers investigated the report and began following a pickup truck. The driver suddenly stopped, got out of the truck, and fired a rifle at them, grazing the head of one of the officers. He got back into his truck and took off. Approximately 20 minutes later, two police officers in the neighboring Riverside Police Department were ambushed while stopped at a red light in their marked patrol unit. One of the officers, Michael Crane, died shortly after being shot, while the other, his partner, Andrew Takius, was rushed to a nearby hospital in critical condition. He survived. Officer Crane was a United States Marine Corps veteran and had served the Riverside Police Department for 11 years. He was survived by his wife, Regina, son, Ian, and daughter, Caitlin. He was 34 years old. About an hour and a half after the shooting of officers Crane and Takius, around 3 a.m. on February 8th, a man matching Dorner's description tried to steal a boat in San Diego, telling the boat's captain that he was going to take the boat to Mexico. A federal criminal complaint was filed against Dorner later that same day for attempting to flee California to avoid prosecution. A few hours after the boat theft attempt, the burning remains of Dorner's vehicle, a dark gray 2005 Nissan Titan pickup truck were discovered on a remote trail by citizen Daniel McGowan near Big Bear Lake, California, about 80 miles from Los Angeles. Investigators canvassed the entire area in search of Dorner in the areas surrounding the location where his burnt-out truck was found. Approximately 125 officers went door-to-door looking for Dorner. All schools in Bear Valley Unified School District were placed on lockdown. The next day, February 9th, the Los Angeles Police Department announced that it will reopen its investigation into the 2007 episode that led to the firing of Dorner. At this point, he was wanted for three murders. 
Chief Charlie Beck said in a written statement, I am aware of the ghosts of the LAPD's past, and one of my biggest concerns is that they will be resurrected by Dorner's allegations of racism within the department. Therefore, I feel we need to also publicly address Dorner's allegations regarding his termination. I do this not to appease a murderer. I do it to reassure the public that their police department is transparent and fair in all of the things that we do. In his explanation as to why he chose to reopen Dorner's case, Chief Beck acknowledged his department's difficult history. He stated, the Los Angeles Police Department has made tremendous strides in gaining the trust and confidence of the people we serve. He also conceded that Dorner's actions may cause a pause in their relationship with the community. Chief Beck's decision to review Dorner's termination was a reversal from the tone he had struck a couple days earlier in a news conference when he was asked about Dorner's accusations of racism within the department. Chief Beck stated, you're talking about a homicide suspect who has committed atrocious crimes. If you want to give any attribution to his ramblings on the internet, go right ahead, but I do not. Chief Beck evidently had a change of heart as Dorner pressed forward on his rampage, keeping Southern California under siege. On February 10th, then Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa announced a $1 million reward for information leading to the arrest and capture of fugitive ex-cop Dorner. Mayor Villaraigosa stated, We will not tolerate anyone undermining the security of this community. We will not tolerate this reign of terror. This would be the largest local reward ever offered, and the reason for such a significant reward was not about capturing a fleeing suspect, but preventing any further crimes, likely more murders. Chief Beck stated, this is an act of domestic terrorism. He's targeted those we entrust to protect the public. The city of Los Angeles, law enforcement organizations, private groups, and anonymous donors all contributed to the reward fund. At this point, the search for Dorner had continued to be a frustrating one. It had spanned from Riverside to Corona to Big Bear to San Diego. Several false sightings, and despite heightened publicity, they had not gotten any closer to making an arrest quite yet. On February 11th, the Riverside District Attorney filed formal charges against Dorner for the murder of a police officer and the attempted murder of three other officers. On February 12th, U.S. and Mexican authorities raided a hotel in Tijuana, Mexico, based on a tip that Dorner was there. They did find a man kind of resembling Dorner staying at the hotel, but it was not him. He wasn't in Mexico. There was no evidence that he had crossed into Mexico. With $1 million on the line, people were on the lookout. Vehicles going into Mexico were certainly being inspected more closely than usual. Also on the 12th, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department sent out a tweet that said, the sheriff has asked all members of the media to stop tweeting immediately. It is hindering officer safety, hashtag Dorner. 
As the events played out, Big Bear, SWAT Team, and Cabin made it to the top of Twitter's trending list. Hashtag Dorner was at the top of trends in Los Angeles. This prompted the department to send out the request. The department didn't give any reasons as to why they made the request, but it speculated that they wanted to preserve the tactical secrets of its officers and those of other law enforcement agencies believed to be convening on the cabin where Dorner had presumed to be holed up and presumably monitoring the goings-on via TV or social media. The department also asked news helicopters to back out of the area as to not reveal locations where deputies were being deployed. Some media outlets complied, others would not. There were mixed feelings about whether social media should be obligated to the public and not be made obligated to the state or government officials. The public also questioned the reasoning or the effectiveness of asking media outlets to comply with the request to stop tweeting updates as their television channels and websites were still being updated regularly. The San Bernardino Sheriff's Department's tweet requesting media outlets to stop tweeting was removed within a few hours of having been posted. On the same day as the Mexico Hotel raid and the controversial tweet, Dorner was indeed keeping busy. He had tied up a married couple, James and Karen Reynolds, who had discovered him hiding out at their residence located a little bit south of Big Bear Lake, close to Snow Summit and Bear Mountain Resort. He then stole their maroon Nissan Rogue, a small SUV, and fled from their cabin. The wife managed to get free, and the couple alerted police at approximately 12.20 p.m. At 12.45, wardens from California Department of Fish and Wildlife spotted Dorner traveling on California State Route 38 in the stolen SUV. Dorner responded by firing shots at the marked vehicle. A game warden returned fire. Dorner was soon cornered by San Bernardino County Sheriff's deputies in a remote mountainous area of Angeles Oaks. The following is an account of the final shootout and last stand. Deputy Alex Collins led the way, following the tire tracks left by the stolen vehicle they were in pursuit of. Just as the deputies were approaching, they heard the sounds of gunfire striking metal as bullets began hitting their vehicle. Deputy Collins was hit and went down, while another deputy on the scene heard bullets continuing to ping off their vehicle dove for cover. None of the deputies had any radio reception in the narrow mountain canyon, so one of them quickly made their way back to their vehicle and broadcasted, shots fired and officer down. Deputies began returning fire, although they were uncertain from where the incoming rounds were being fired. Their vehicles kept getting hit by bullets, shattering windows and puncturing tires. Deputy Collins, with gunshot wounds to the face, left forearm, left knee, and upper chest, dragged himself behind the vehicle and sat leaning against the tire. As he sat there, he wanted to call his wife to tell her that he loved her, just in case he would not ever get the chance to do so again. He reached into his vest for his cell phone, but soon realized it had been shattered by a bullet.
It would later be determined that that phone blocked the bullet that had penetrated his load-bearing vest, stopping it from entering his body. The deputies who were pinned down behind their unit, a Dodge Durango, attempted to find ways to return fire. Detective Jeremiah McKay raised up slightly over the hood of his vehicle to get a shot when another burst of rounds came out from the nearby cabin that hit their SUV. Detective McKay was struck and fell back with a gunshot wound to the neck. Bullets continued to ricochet off the pavement and under the vehicle, but they managed to get out the call that a second officer was down. Hearing the officer down calls, San Bernardino County Special Enforcement Detail quickly rushed up the road to assist the deputies under fire. The SWAT team arrived in short order and soon surrounded the cabin. Riverside police officers also descended upon the scene where all law enforcement steadily began firing into the cabin to force the shooter away from the cabin windows. Two smoke canisters were tossed in front of the cabin to offer cover so officers could save Deputy Collins and Detective McKay, who were still lying in front of the area of the cabin. The cabin was fired upon to provide cover while two other deputies dragged the two downed officers to safety. They were loaded into the backseat of an awaiting sheriff's unit and driven back down the mountain. A rescue helicopter had already landed on the opposite side of the firefight of the cabin, and the two officers were airlifted to Loma Linda University Medical Center at approximately 1.48 p.m. There was a physician on board the helicopter who began medical treatment immediately. Deputy Collins was urged by the doctor to hang on, and he did. He would survive his injuries, and seven months later, he would be back on the job. Sadly, Detective McKay would be pronounced dead during the helicopter ride. The 14-year veteran was survived by his father, Alan, his mother, Don Marie, sister, Angela, wife, Lynette, six-year-old stepdaughter, Caitlin, and newborn son, Caden. He was 35 years old. As hundreds of law enforcement personnel surrounded the wood-paneled cabin where Dorner had barricaded himself, fired rounds and lobbed tear gas into the structure, Dorner continued firing upon the officers. As he did so, the police made the controversial decision of firing incendiary canisters into the cabin. Fire quickly spread through the building, creating a tremendous blaze which lit up the forest brightly as the nighttime set in. Although during a subsequent press conference, a spokesperson denied that the cabin was intentionally burned down to force Dorner out, it was reported that commands such as burn him were heard over police scanners, suggesting otherwise. Either way, the cabin was set ablaze and at some point, Dorner stopped firing. And it has been reported that as millions of people watch this unfold on television, watch the cabin burn to the ground, one single shot was heard coming from inside the cabin. Officials would later confirm that the remains of one individual burned beyond recognition was positively identified by way of dental records as being those of disgraced ex-police officer 
ex-naval reservist turned spree killer, Christopher Dorner. It would also later be determined that amid the flames that were surrounding him in that cabin, Dorner died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He was 33 years old. As I began writing the story of the manifesto, I did so because I found them to be so intriguing. It kind of reminded me of the times back in college when I would read one true crime novel after another, the stories of killers. I even had one book entitled The Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. I often wondered what the heck was going on in the mind of these people. How or why did they do these atrocious acts? It got to the point where it was just too overwhelming to try and get into the mind of these killers. There were too many of them, too many killers, too many victims, too much to try and wrap my mind around. But these manifestos, the actual writings in their own words that outline their thinking, their mindsets, their grievances, their motivations, and their intentions. This was different. They laid it all out for us, those of us fascinated with true crime, to take it all in. But after I got past the contents of Dorner's manifesto, and I only included a fraction of the thing, I started to delve into his crime spree and I came to the realization that in spending my time reading his manifesto, anybody's manifesto for that matter, the Unabomber, the Columbine shooters, the Isla Vista shooter, the Charleston church shooter, the Virginia Tech shooter, I'm giving them exactly what they wanted when they wrote it, attention. These people, so disgusted and disgruntled with the world, put their twisted thoughts and ramblings down in writing or on video, leave it out there for the world to see, then seize our attention with their shootings or bombings or killing sprees. And suddenly the world, myself included, is giving them exactly what they want. They want their names to be known and they would make it happen at any cost. They were going to force us into noticing them. And in mulling over these various manifestos, I've fallen for it, hook, line, and sinker. All of these killers knew that we, the public and the media, would be talking about them after they committed their crimes. And that seems to be a huge motivating factor for all of them. I can't unsee what I've already seen and I can't unread what I've already read, but I'm wondering about the next emotionally unstable person that decides he or she is going to take their anger and frustration and self-loathing out on the world. Am I gonna waste my time by giving them exactly what they want by reading their ramblings? I don't know. I'm so painfully curious. It's like a train wreck that I can't stop staring at. I grew to become so conflicted about the entire premise of this episode as I wrote it. It was much too late to scrap it and start all over again. 
These killers are clearly bad people, and here I am devoting an entire episode to one of them. Was there anything to learn? In the wake of any one of these tragedies, I think it's important to remember that after the shock, grief, and anger, people tend to come together. We mourn together and sympathize with one another. I don't know if the state of the country is at that place at this moment, but I do know that the people in my world, my family, my friends, and the countless people that I have had the pleasure of interacting with as a result of this show on social media have been overwhelmingly kind, compassionate, and inspiring. And if any of you listening to this episode feel it was a mistake to examine this manifesto, I completely understand. I've been questioning the decision all week, but my own personal fascination with the thing and having experienced that fear that gripped Southern California at the time Dorner was on the loose and the relief I felt when he burned up in that cabin That had me wanting to share this story with those of you outside of California who may have never heard of him before. And my perception of the manifesto has changed somewhat since I sat down to begin to write this. These documents aren't really a revealing glimpse into the deranged mind of a killer, but rather a glimpse into the self-centered, shallow, egotistical, narcissistic writings of pathetic human beings. And with that, dreamers, I will bring this episode, The Tale of the Last Resort, to a close. And I have a few things that I want to discuss before I sign off, so hopefully you'll stick around for a listen. First and foremost, I am so excited to announce that California Dreaming has joined the Orbital Jigsaw Network with some other podcasts that you might want to check out like The Concession Stand, a weekly show where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, movies, TV, video games, and more. Or Super Nerds UK podcast, an irreverent look at pop culture with hosts Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon with celebrity interviews, in-depth features, quiz shows, and a large dose of nerdy humor. Or, Busted Wide Open, a weekly pro wrestling and WWE podcast with hosts Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous, who take you on a journey through the hottest news in sports entertainment. Or, Historium, a podcast devoted to telling the strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history. And of course, the Dirty Bits podcast. A weekly podcast hosted by my pod sister, Tawny Plattis. Hey girl, let me see if I can do this as well as she does. With her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out. We are so proud to be a part of such an eclectic group of podcasters. Check them out if you have a chance on the Orbital Jigsaw Network at orbitaljigsaw.com. I also wanted to tell you guys about a show that I'm enjoying so much. 
the Gone Cold Podcast. It's a show dedicated to the mysterious 1974 kidnapping and death of Carla Walker in the Lone Star State of Texas. The host is mesmerizing in his storytelling, great interviews, and full of intricate details of this unsolved case, but I will let him tell you more about it. On February 17, 1974, Carla Walker was pulled from the passenger side of a car. After a struggle leaving her boyfriend unconscious, Carla was abducted by the strange attacker. Her body was found in a culvert near a lake three days later. Join the Gone Cold podcast as we explore Carla's case in depth, as well as other unsolved and missing persons cases throughout the state of Texas. You can follow me on Facebook at the California Dreaming Discussion page. I'm on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. I also have a Patreon page, which I promise I'm going to figure out how to run better. My goal is to not only donate to various causes, which I am still dedicated to doing so for the rest of August for the Joyful Child Foundation, but also hope to develop some show perks. Get some bigger, better swag out there for you guys. I'm looking to shift the mini episodes over to the Patreon page sometime in the future. One of the best parts about joining the Orbital Jigsaw Network is I'll be able to expand on my content and hopefully bring you more in-depth details and information in future shows. Thank you all again for listening, and don't forget to get on iTunes and Facebook and leave me some feedback. And until next time... Sweet dreams. Mm-hmm.